Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld, where we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, today with a message entitled, The Millennium. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years are ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. You know, to many people, these are strange words indeed. I mean, how can it be that after Christ returns, Satan is bound for a thousand years and then released again? You know, I would have thought that after Christ came, I mean, that was it. The present world would come to an end and the new heavens and the new earth would then be before us. What then is this 1,000-year reign in which Satan is bound and then after the 1,000 years he's released Then he goes on to deceive the nations and then is finally vanquished. I mean, how can such a thing be so? Now, to this, I'd like to give a little example. You know, years ago, I was sitting on the Mount of Olives and I was gazing at the city of Jerusalem alongside of a young Jewish tour guide. It was just the two of us and others were doing other things and we two were left alone. Well, our conversation turned towards the identity of Jesus. You know, I told my guide that when the Messiah returned after he came down from heaven and defeated his enemies at Armageddon, that he would then immediately turn toward Jerusalem. His foot would touch down on the earth, exactly where we were sitting, on the Mount of Olives. Well, he looked at me not knowing whether to take me seriously or not, and I told him it was in the Bible. In fact, it was in the Old Testament, Zechariah 14, 3 to 4. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. And my guide said, well, that's very interesting, but of course, I wasn't done. I asked my guide, when the Messiah comes, what if his hands and his feet have marks of nails, and his side shows the place where a lance once pierced? I said to him, you should know that this is what Zechariah said, and I pointed out Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. I remember my guide said that if the Messiah came and he had pierced hands and feet, he said, then I would believe. Now, it might be that a great many of us would seize on that opportunity and say to the guide, well, that will be too late. And to be sure, I did tell my guide that since his Bible already told him that that's how the Messiah would return, he should believe now. But I relay this story to make a point. When Christ returns, is it then too late for everyone? And this, my dear friends, is where there's a great debate. I mean, getting back to our text in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3, this passage stands at the very center of a heated debate among some Bible teachers. I mean, what happens when Christ returns? Is that the end and the beginning? Or is the beginning of the new heavens and the earth not yet among us? Does that sound strange? Well, it is. 
Consider the three very different approaches to Revelation 20. The first is a view that has fallen out of favor in the last number of years, and it's called postmillennialism. I mean, this view holds that the millennium must happen before Christ returns. And so postmillennialists believe that before Christ returns, the gospel will spread so powerfully that peace and justice will reign for a long period of time, and then Christ will return. As I've said, that view has fallen out of favor, and I, for my part, don't think that this view can really be squared with the overall flow of the New Testament. The New Testament assumes that believers in Christ will suffer until Christ returns. We don't win until Christ returns. Now, a second perspective held by a great many respected Bible teachers, including men from J.I. Packer going all the way back to Martin Luther, and even as far back as Augustine, is a view that we will call amillennialism. Now, this view holds that the language of a millennium is symbolic language and should not be taken literally. So for them, the millennium is the age of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, wherein, because of the power of the gospel, Satan is bound from keeping the nations from Christ. And so for them, Revelation 20 is a symbol of the power of the gospel in the present age, even while it's fraught with suffering. And so for them, when Christ returns, that's it. The old earth is done and the new earth is upon us. Now, I'm going to be clear. I am a premillennialist, and if you're confused about that, let me confuse you even further. I am what might be referred to as a historic premillennialist. Now, there are a variety of views of premillennialism, and I, I'm not going to bore you with all the details, only to say that the kind of premillennialism that I hold to was also held by Papias, who lived in 60 to 130 AD, also by Justin Martyr, who lived from 100 to 165, by a man named Arrhenius, who lived from 130 to 200, by Tertullian, who lived about 130, and by Hippolytus, who lived from 160 to 236, and, and a great many more. That is to say, the evidence is that the generation of Christian leaders and Bible teachers that followed immediately after the apostles were, as far as I know, all premillennialists. That is, the early church believed in a literal 1,000-year millennium. And furthermore, as far as I know, all past Bible teachers right here at Back to the Bible have all been premillennialists. I know. We don't make our case about what the Bible actually teaches by citing how many theologians agree with us. We make our case from the Bible, but, but I mention this because I think it's very important that on these matters, we examine what the Bible teaches, but we also act with charity and graciousness towards believers with whom we disagree on this matter on the millennium. I know that to some, you'll no doubt ask, what difference does all this stuff make? And to that, I'm going to argue that it makes a great deal of difference, but please hold that thought. I will return to that. Now, before we get into the details, let me lay out what, what it is that I believe about this matter of the millennium. I believe that after Christ returns, the earth will live then under a 1,000-year reign of peace, living under the direct authority of Christ who will physically reign the world from Jerusalem. And then after the 1,000 years are ended, there will be a brief and final battle in which Satan will be permanently conquered, and he will forever be assigned to the lake of fire, after which will come the final judgment, and then and only then come the new heavens and the new earth. So why do I hold this? 
Well, for one, you might have noticed that when I began, I I relayed my conversation with the Jewish guide a number of years ago. We were talking about Zechariah and about the prophet's word that the Messiah would come and his feet would touch the Mount of Olives. And then after that, Zechariah says more, and I'm reading Zechariah 14, verses 16 to 19. It says, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. Well then, how do we conceive of this time when the Messiah returns and then demands that all the earth is required to worship the Lord of hosts, but that some of the nations might be tempted to think that perhaps we just aren't going to do that? Well, we know that can't refer to the new heavens and the new earth. But that also can't refer to the present era, for at present, the nations don't go up to worship the Lord. You see, Zechariah sees a day that's unlike our day, and it's also unlike the new heavens and the new earth. But there are other passages in the Old Testament that also speak about this unique time to come that's not the new heavens, but it's also not the present era. For instance, Isaiah 65 verse 20 says, No more shall there be in it, that is, in the days to come, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. That's to say, in the age to come, a man who dies at a hundred, well, everyone's going to think God's cursed him. Well, again, in the new heavens, no one dies at all, but in the present era, very few live to be a hundred. And clearly, the prophets are referring to a unique time yet to come. Indeed, there is a unique time coming. You know, we see this in both the Old and the New Testament. Yeah, I think the Bible is clear. There is a real, literal millennium coming. Why? Sarah wrote, I have been saved for over 50 years, was just a little girl, in fact. Back to the Bible has been part of my life forever, and I've given to the ministry even out of my allowance when I was little. Dr. Newfeld brings scripture to life. There is depth yet practicality, challenge but hope. The world has changed, technology has made everything closer, ministries have changed. Yet, Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teachings. They have embraced technology while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. Sarah, thank you. Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. If you have a story to share, or if you'd like to share a gift of support, call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let's follow the sequence of events described to us in the beginning of Revelation 20. So here I'm reading verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now the bottomless pit is the same location that has been described before. 
Back in Revelation 9, we saw an angel who had been given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. The angel then opened the pit and smoke came out of it, like the smoke of a great furnace, and then out of that horrible place come demonic locusts who swarm the earth and bring great suffering. Now, going ahead to chapter 11, verse 6, we're told that the beast or the Antichrist also arise out of the bottomless pit. That is to say, his power and kingdom and his ability to rule the nation come from that place. So what's the bottomless pit? The Greek word that is used is a word from which we get the word abyss. Paul used the same word in Romans 10, verse 7, where he says, who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring up Christ from the dead. So the abyss is the place of the dead. It is, if you will, the underworld. But we also know that now, according to Ephesians 2, verse 2, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. You know, in Ephesians 6, verse 6, Paul speaks of spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And in Ephesians, Paul presents us with a picture in which Satan is given a great deal of freedom to move about and to create a great deal of evil and suffering. But here in Revelation 20, Satan's freedom of movement is removed. The angel comes with both a chain and the key to open the bottomless pit. Now to verses 2 and 3. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until a thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. There have been a great many who have argued that the 1,000 years is a literal 1,000 years, and others who argue that the number is symbolic. And so for them, since Revelation is so full of numbers, they notice that 1,000 is the equivalent of the third power of 10, which would be the ideal period of time. And hence, it is for, for those Bible teachers that the 1,000 is the ideal amount of time determined and known by the perfect God. Well, I, for my part, find no reason to enter into that debate. Whether it's an exact 1,000 years or it's a symbolic number for a long period of time, it's, in my view, only a distraction from the real issue. The real issue is that in the future, God will determine that his mighty angel will seize Satan and bind him for a 1,000 years. But our attention should not be detracted from the meaning of this event. So let me take you back to the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 12, 28 and 29. He says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now let's see if I can restate what Jesus is saying. Every time, says Jesus, I cast out a demon, I'm actually entering into Satan's house. I'm I'm plundering Satan's goods. I'm tying him up and I'm taking all that he thinks belongs to him. Now, that image is actually not unique. Jesus said something very similar in Matthew 16, verse 18, when he said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. See, there the image is of a strong city, Satan's city. It holds captives, lost souls. And the church breaks down Satan's gates and rescues men and women for God. Now, furthermore, Colossians 2.15 says that the Father disarmed the rulers and authorities, and that speaks, of course, of Satan and the demons, and that he triumphed over them in the cross of Jesus. 
That is, Satan was routed at the cross. But that does not mean that Satan is not active or that he's bound. Although he suffered a major defeat in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, yet he is not without means. You see, 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, that's to say Satan does in this present age devour and kill and steal, destroy, set up political systems in the world that that resist the gospel. And furthermore, Satan incites Christian leaders into sin so as to bring disgrace to the gospel and cause men and women to discount the gospel. So even while Satan can't keep from losing men and women to the kingdom of heaven, he is fighting back hard. He's not bound. He's doing all that he can to blunt the message of Christ and to subvert it so that men and women would reject the gospel. Now, the day will come, however, when Satan will not only lose men and women to the kingdom of God, he will be prevented from subverting the nations. Now, this idea gives rise to the question of the role of Satan in this present era. Has Satan deceived all the nations, or to put it another way, are all the nations of the earth under his deception? Now, this is an important question for Christians who who want to understand the relationship that they have to the countries in which they live. Is there room for patriotism in the present hour, or has our nation been deceived by Satan? Well, the answer to that question requires a little thought. You know, for instance, Romans 13 verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And then verse 4 says of governing authorities, for he is God's servant for your good. Now, we understand from that that governments are instituted by God and they're not instituted by Satan. And it's for this reason that Christians, when they're authentic Christians, you know, we're never revolutionaries. We don't seek the overthrow of government. But we do know that while it's true that God institutes governments, that Satan does subvert governments and whole nations. And it's for this reason that Christians should pray for their government. And Christians should also seek to communicate to any government under which they live that they're not the enemy of the government. We seek to live in peace. We seek to bless the nations in which we live. We we don't seek the sword. And we don't seek to join our hands with revolutionaries. But what then of patriotism? Well, those of you who know your history will know that there have been many nations in history who have portrayed themselves as Christian nations. Well, is that so? Because if you know your history, a great many in Muslim lands look at the West as Christian nations. And when they see the sensuality and lawlessness in the West, they assume this is what Christianity is all about. And so let me make what might be considered as a controversial statement. I do not believe that there is any Christian nation in this world with the exception of the Church of Jesus Christ, which according to 1 Peter 2 verse 9 is a holy nation. That's it. No other nation is a Christian nation flat out. But the presence of Christians in any nation will provide salt and light as we will advocate for justice and righteousness. But it's wrong to call any nation Christian outside of the church. Indeed, calling our nation a Christian nation, I think is not only false teaching, it creates a dangerous subversion of the gospel. 
Now then, there is a time coming, according to Revelation eleven fifteen, when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. But that time is in the future, and it's not today. But that brings us now back to the subject of the millennium. When Satan is bound and is then unable to subvert the nations, will the nations of the world become Christian nations? Well, on the one hand, as we're going to see tomorrow, it will mean that the nations of the world will be ruled by Christ himself. But as we've already seen, the nations might decide they don't want to worship the Lord. It will be mandated that they must, but the human heart does not resist the gospel because it's short of evidence. The human heart resists the gospel because it finds the idea of the lordship of Jesus to be distasteful. Years ago, I read a book by Harry Ironside titled The Invisible War, and I've long since lost that wonderful book, but I do remember one thing that was said. It said that God in his sovereignty determined that every single avenue of rebellion might be thoroughly explored so that in the end, it will be seen with ultimate clarity that God's ways alone are just and righteous and good. And in a sense, that's what happens in the millennium. Christ reigns, and yet the human heart remains in rebellion. Clearly, the ultimate for which we are seeking will not be the millennium. It is but a halfway step. We need a new heaven and a new earth. John, thanks again for your message today. Uh, uh, just thinking back, you know, it's, it's interesting that even though Christ might reign, we still have to understand that there are those that will not accept him, that will reject him, that will continue to live separated from him in sin. Yeah, I mean, the millennium does that. I mean, it marvelously shows what a world will look like when justice reigns, you know. There are varying degrees of justice in the world in which we live today. We all know that. Some nations approach it better than others. We know that nations often tend to, you know, go back from it. But what's it like to live in a world where justice is always done, where righteousness is proclaimed, where the issue of truth is never a question? Because truth will be proclaimed by God and shown to be what it is. I mean, if it's no longer a problem of evidence, but it's only a problem then of the heart, what then? And the answer seems to be from Revelation that the heart finds God to be obtrusive. And so even with Christ reigning in Jerusalem, the human heart will still do what the human heart does. And that's the lesson, I think, from the millennium. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Revelation 18 to 22 is the passage of Revelation that I will focus on in my fourth and final volume of my series, The Triumph of the Lamb, which chronicles the end of the present age and the creation of a new age in which sin and death and sorrow and evil are forever vanquished. Step away from the uncertainty of life and allow the book of Revelation to present a message of certain hope like no other. As this is the final volume of this series, we want to make it available to you on CD for only $19 or the entire four-volume series for only $75. Either choice includes shipping and taxes. And remember, the entire series can also be heard online at backtothebible.ca or by downloading or subscribing to our Back to the Bible Canada mobile app or podcast. 
To receive your CD series or offer a gift to support this ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.